This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm the lady, Sarah Welch Larson. Oh, I, I'm, I'm caught a little bit off guard. Just make sure to keep any mud puddles or giant sides of beef far away from me. What about this gigantic tea set on a flimsy tray? Uh, too flimsy for my taste. Keep that far away from me as well. We don't want any mishaps. Listeners, there are already plenty of surprises in store for you on this week's episode. We have been referencing, of course, a couple of mishaps that Henry Fonda encounters in the film that we're reviewing in the Watchlist segment this week, The Lady Eve. And we'll also be giving you a little bit of tonal whiplash. Uh, Our new release review this week is Mariama Diallo's Master, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. All that's coming up on episode 326 of Seeing and Believing. Nope, nope, keep that tea service away from me. <laughs> Last name, first name? Warren. Jasmine. Guys, she got the room. Legends. Ancaster College is crowded with them. When you go to a school that's nearly as old as the country, You can expect to hear a few. It can be really hard for students of color. Just know I'm here. It's amazing, Gil. First black master. Very exciting. (laughs) It is. So, you live here too? Yeah. The whole school's cursed. Okay, you're, you're gonna have to try a lot harder than that to scare me. Seriously, it's, it's real. Yes, we're here on episode 326 of Seeing and Believing, and, you know, we actually, this is going to be a little bit of a whiplash episode yeah. uh, this week, Sarah, because we were originally going to pair our review of the Lady Eve and the Watchlist segments with The Lost City, but mm-hmm. unfortunately... That ended up not working out, so... The lost city remains lost. It's, you know, completely shrouded in in mystery. It will retain its mystique for some time, maybe. Um, But so we had to call an audible, and we landed on a a horror movie instead. So... (laughs) We're going to go from a horror movie to a screwball comedy. We'll see how it goes. Tone shift. It's it's good for you sometimes. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and this is the first time, if I'm not mistaken, that you and I have talked about a horror film on the podcast. Is that right? Not counting Dracula, which was our first watch list pick. Which... First. Yeah. 
It's a horror movie. It, no, it, it's totally a horror movie. First modern horror movie, I that guess. That counts. Yeah, yeah. That, that works. Um, listeners, you are you are hearing it here first. Uh, we are going to be talking about The Lady Eve in the Watchlist segment later on. I'm definitely looking forward to that. Uh, but for now, let's turn our attention to Mariama Diallo's Master. This is her feature film debut, and it is a horror film about three black women, two professors, and a student who have to struggle to find their place at an elite Northeastern university as old as the United States itself. When anonymous racist attacks target the student, played by Zoe Renee, she insists she is being haunted by ghosts of the school's racist past. The professors, played by Regina Hall and Amber Gray, have to determine in their turn just how much of the menace is supernatural and how much is coming from much more earthbound quarters. So this is obviously a film that, you know, like a lot of what we might call prestige horror films in the last few years, uh, quote unquote do. elevated horror elevated I hate horror that term. hate that term we're we're not going to use that for the remainder of this show mm-hmm. um but the you know those kinds of uh films tend to really have a lot on their mind besides just you know goosing the audience with scares there's a lot of social commentary mm-hmm. in master as well so to kick us off i'm actually kind of curious to get your thoughts on that about how well master manages the tightrope walk of bringing that social commentary while also bringing the scares. I'm of two minds on this movie. Um, It's tough uh, because I think that it's doing some interesting things in terms of horror. It's not really interested in jump scares or anything like that. It's more interested in a mood of dread. Um, The problem is that I didn't really necessarily feel the dread so much as just a deep sadness and like just a pervasive sadness about the situation that these characters are kind of finding themselves in. And then also in terms of social commentary, it felt a little bit muddled to me too. So I don't know, like, I appreciate what this movie is going for. It kind of felt like it was swinging for the fences and I admire that. Um, But at the same time, I I just don't know if it was like, if it fully pulled everything off. I'm actually curious to hear you. I'm going to, before I share my own opinion, I'm kind of in a similar place to you and feeling Mm -hmm. mixed on the film, but I want to hear more about what you think about when you say it's muddled, what, what you think about that? Like what, where's that come from? It's doing so much. Like I think, I think a lot of the social commentary is coming from a lot of different angles all at once. And there's, there's a lot going on where, um, there are a lot of microaggressions, especially that, um, Jasmine, the character played by Zoe Renee, um, experiences over and over and over again. And a lot of them feel like they're just a touch too over the top. And I don't know if that's on purpose, if that's purposefully calling out that, hey, this is a microaggression that is happening to this character and that the main audience is intended to be somebody who wouldn't necessarily be familiar with that kind of experience. Or if this is supposed to be something where if you're watching this movie, you recognize like, yes, this is my experience and I understand how this feels. So I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm I'm a little bit at my limit in terms of critical thought with this movie because I don't know what it's like to experience racism in the United States. I can only be told. And I felt like this movie was telling me, but I don't know that it necessarily told me in a way that felt true, but I also can't say that because I don't experience it, if that makes sense. Like there's that mixture of I'm being told and I get that I'm being told, but I don't know how effective the telling is because I can't confirm it for myself. I, I think I'm tracking with you here. And for me, I, 
I, I think that's that's a good point to acknowledge that both of us being white, mm-hmm. uh, the subject matter of this is just we're going to be approaching it from a totally different place. Mm-hmm. But for me, I I felt as if it wasn't so much that I I wasn't sure how to evaluate the the social commentary about these, you know, the the microaggressions that this uh, freshman student is facing so much as it felt like it was a little bit a little on the nose to me. It mm-hmm. felt like I don't know. It's it's unfair. Get out casts such a long shadow, <laughs> and I don't want to compare every single uh, horror adjacent film that is talking about racial issues to Get Out. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think about how Get Out was able to so successfully marry its thriller slash horror elements with its social commentary in a way that felt. Like they were both mutually supporting each other. Hmm. And in this, in the case of Master, I felt like I was really, I felt that the parts of it that were the most effective was when it was pretty upfront about just kind of like the everyday sort of racism that uh, this young student would experience. Like the, ex- the the experience of being on a dance floor surrounded by white people singing hmm. along to a hip hop song that uses the N word mm-hmm. and how to the white students, it's just sort of, they're just singing along to a song mm-hmm. for the black students. It's, it's aggressive. It's aggressive and and frightening. Mm-hmm. And I found that, that those sequences were very effective. The sequences that are more overtly supernatural or horror-like mm-hmm. um, are effective in terms of just the way Diallo films them and conceives of them. I don't feel like they're... It, it feels like they're almost unnecessary to the story that's being told. I, f- I found the the dance sequence, uh, you know, with the white students hollering the N-word to be much more frightening mm. and much more urgent feeling to me than the actual horror sequences themselves. So this may be where we differ a little bit on this movie, I think, because I think a lot of the atmospheric, like, supernatural-esque stuff did work for me in a way in that it felt like... Um, Jasmine is experiencing a waking bad dream just constantly, like the kind of bad dream where you're running and you can't escape something and it's always going to catch up with you. And the it in this case is racism. Um, And I think that it worked largely because there is a moment um, later on in the film where there is a scene that is shot to look like one of these nightmares. All of the nightmares have this like deep bloody red lighting almost, like very effective, looks kind of unsettling. Everything moves in a slightly slower motion. And then there is this scene where a nightmare happens and then it turns out to be actually very, very real. Like another character shows up and she's clearly seeing the exact same thing that Jasmine is seeing as well. And I think at that point where the nightmare invades real life, Um, is both in that moment and then that moment on the dance floor as well, where all of these students are being very aggressive. Um, There's also that sense of like that light, that red lighting that's happening there too. Um, So yeah, I don't know. Like I think in terms of mood and tone, I never felt frightened. Like I, I don't feel like I felt horror in the moment as I was watching this movie. But as I was going through watching this movie, I felt horrified by the circumstances that Jasmine finds herself in, particularly because she can't escape them. She's kind of trapped in them and she can't run out. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that we're talking so much about the Jasmine sections of the film because 
that's where those sequences are the parts of the film that are most the overtly mm -hmm. uh, genre specific in terms of, you know, they're very much going for a horrific atmosphere um, and they're building a kind of mood that is, is very intentional. And that there's a whole other half of this film mm -hmm. involving the professors, Regina Hall and played by Regina Hall and Amber Gray that um, also have horror elements, but they feel even though they interact with the other storyline, it, it feels like they're in a, not in a different movie, but it feels almost like the, the film is going off in, in a, in a different direction with, with <laughs> the way their story unfolds. Mm. Um, and Again, it's interesting. I'm not sure if it holds together mm. as well. And maybe, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. Maybe that's kind of where my misgivings about this film come in. is isn't so much that there are any singular sequences that just flat out don't work for me. It's more that I don't know that Diallo has really managed to synthesize it all into uh, an overall... Uh, experience that that works entirely for me yeah and this is where i'm also of two minds about this movie i think because i do think that that through line between all three of these characters could have been more focused um but at the same time regina hall and amber gray's characters have lived through what zoe renee's character has lived through like at one point one of them actively mentions like you can't escape this this is america this is what we all have to live with so maybe they've become more used to the circumstances that they're stuck in um i don't know it feels like the movie's thesis is like what's even the point of climbing to the top of a system that's rotting from the inside out and that will never like acknowledge your worth as a human being and i did feel like i got that with all of these characters' storylines just to differing degrees. It's definitely much more overt with Jasmine's character. But there are shades of that happening too with Regina Hall and with Amber Gray as they're negotiating um, tenure meetings and faculty and dealing with everybody else around them who happens to be in a position of power at this institution who is also very, very white. <laughs> I, You know... And I, th I found for me, the, the through line is each one of these characters is kind of looking for a sort of, of belonging. Mm -hmm. And that, that word belonging is actually something that is, is brought out a couple of times explicitly in dialogue where the, uh, these, these professors, you know, they acknowledge that they're, they're surrounded by a system that does not treat them the same way that white faculty would be treated. Mm -hmm. um, e even their colleagues who are, for the most part, kind of the, the genially oblivious sort of liberal racist that you'd recognize from like the, you know, the mm -hmm. I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could uh, line from get out. Like they're, mm -hmm. they're all, they're, they're not um, out to get them but they're still kind of they they kind of have their boot on the neck of mm -hmm. of these of these black women and they're just kind of okay with that and it's up to the black women to sort of like decide what they're going to do about it and for each one that kind of looks a little bit different one of them kind of 
uh, seeks to um, just kind of go along to get along. Mm -hmm. And and another one is much more confrontational about it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's interesting. The the part where I'm I'm wondering whether this film is effective enough for me is that I, I'm not sure that by the end I get a good sense of what the film is specifically trying to say about those things other than that they exist. Yeah, I think the thing that trouble, troubles me the most about it is that there isn't really any solution that's presented. Everybody can either choose to get out or <laughs> I hate myself for saying that. Um, everybody can either choose to get out or to go along, but either way, you're either shut out of a system that doesn't appreciate you or you're shut into a system that still doesn't appreciate you as kind of a second class citizen, according to this movie. And like, that's neither of those feels satisfying. And at the same time, like that kind of feels true to life in a few ways. Like there's, there is no good solution right now. Like, I don't know. It, mm. it, it felt true and it felt incomplete at the same time. And I don't know what to do with that, which is why I've been grappling with this for the past few days. Tell me if this if this makes sense to you. I'm I'm sort of spitballing, listeners. I'm I'm sorry that you're listening to uh, me spitball instead of offer a much more considered opinion. But I I think one thing that dissatisfied me in the immediate aftermath of seeing this film was that it did seem to have very clear things to say, mm -hmm. and I kind of wished that it almost had been less on the nose about the way that it said it. Hmm. And I'm wondering if a lot of kind of what we're bumping up against here is that the film has a lot of compelling observations about race in America, about the different dynamics that can afflict people in a in a system that is implicitly racist but not explicitly so. There's lots of interesting themes brought to the fore here. But I don't know that it's entirely satisfying as a horror movie. Mm. And I wonder if if it if it had committed more strongly to its genre trappings, then it could have achieved a closure, not in terms of it can't solve racism. No movie can solve something like yeah. that. But a horror movie can solve the the challenges or the conflicts that its own narrative raises. Mm. And maybe that's kind of where I'm bumping up against a sense of dissatisfaction with this film is that this it, it raises these issues in a very straightforward way, but it doesn't really transmute them into horror cinema in a way that allows it to actually resolve any of it. Yeah, as like a tone poem movie, I think it works really well. But as like... A horror movie, again, like I'd mentioned earlier, I never really felt truly frightened, except for there's one crucial scene where Regina Hall is at a gathering with other faculty and professors, and she looks around the room and she sees different photographs on the wall of like professors who had been at the school years and years before and they're among the faculty with her as well and i thought that felt like that was one of the less on like less overt like slightly more chilling touches i kind of wish that there had been more of that it's 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 a it's a haunting but it's a haunting that it's 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 almost unclear in the way that diallo shoots it whether it's a, meant to be like these are literal apparitions she's seeing or mm. whether 
you know, these are actually just sort of like people who happen to very closely resemble those portraits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how metaphorical is it? How are, you know, that that's a productive tension, I think, for the film to create in the viewer. And I guess I kind of wished for for more of that where it used these horror elements to kind of play with us a little bit more. More blood and guts for Kevin is what I'm hearing. No, no, no. More not more blood and guts. More, you know, more maybe more scary ghosts crawling out of television sets. <laughs> but I I mean I think that uh I think something you said earlier about how the night Jasmine's nightmares invading reality. Mm -hmm. Um that's kind of, I, I like that idea. Mm -hmm. And I wish that the film had maybe committed to that a little bit stronger because while it's present in a few scenes, I didn't really come away from the film with that being the strongest impression. I came away from kind of thinking about the, what the film is arguing about, you know, what does it mean to see race? You know, what does it mean to be racist? Mm -hmm. What, you know, what challenges can, uh, somebody facing these systems, is it worth climbing to the top of a system that's rotten to the core? Mm -hmm. Those are all questions the film asks, and sometimes very explicitly in dialogue. And I kind of wanted something that preyed on me on a more primal level, which I think is what horror does best. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still like... You say all of that, and I'm still picturing like there's there is a hooded figure that sort of haunts the the halls of the um, of the university, like in the background behind Jasmine in particular, and I keep seeing that figure in the back of the corridors, and that still gets me a little bit. Like there's just something unsettling there. So I don't know. I I think it worked on me a little bit better than it did on you. Yeah, I the I think maybe the the final reveal of where those hooded figure, you know what what those hooded figures might have actually been mm -hmm. um, is part of the reason why that ended up falling apart for me. Because there is a late film twist that sort of twists and then untwists. Yeah, Which is a very strange, it's a very strange choice on Diallo's part, who, you know, we, we've been saying she's a director, she also wrote this. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's an impressive debut and I'm interested to see what she does. But I don't think that... Uh, the script really it, it's got some head scratchers in there where i'm not really sure what the purpose of some of these plot cul-de-sacs was mm -hmm. well listeners that is our review our somewhat mixed review of mariama diallo's master which can be streamed on prime um if you see it and you have thoughts come talk to us about them uh you can tweet at us on twitter at See Believe Pod. You can also email us at seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. And then uh, when we come back, we will be talking about Kevin's watch list pick, uh, The Lady Eve. taking a quick break and this is the part of the show where we like to kind of keep the conversation going this is something we talk about a lot i feel like at, at least since sarah you joined the show we kind of were 
throwing things back and forth about what we wanted the show to be. And one of the things that we really love to do with Seeing and Believing is to foster a conversation, not just between you and me here in the recording studio, mm -hmm. but also between us and our listeners. So this is the part of the show where we kind of like to dig into our mailbag, read some feedback that we've gotten on Twitter or email. So uh, yeah, let's uh, let's dig into that right now. We've got a couple of good ones to share with everyone this week. Yeah, we got a really uh, lovely tweet from Cray Allred, um, who tweeted that he enjoyed listening to Seeing and Believing. Um, listening to us do like an ordinary review for Turning Red, um, which was our episode last week, um, if you haven't listened to that yet. Um, but he appreciated that we reviewed it as though it was an ordinary movie rather than a culture war battlefront. So, Kevin, should we have brought in the culture war battlefront? You know, inside every film critic <laughs> are two, is two wolves. <laughs> One wolf is the film Twitter curmudgeon that just really wants to you know, shoot cannonballs everywhere and just make everyone feel bad about what they like and also that we can feel good about ourselves. And the other wolf is the one I like to think comes out more often <laughs> you know, on seeing and believing. So I'm glad that uh, Cray uh, enjoyed that as well. That was really encouraging to hear. Also really encouraging because Cray Allred is a name from Seeing and Believing History. He was our very first producer. So it's nice to know that he still listens to the show, even when he's not being paid to do it. <laughs> Through the mists of time. <laughs> from Cray's Twitter to our ears. Oh, thanks thanks so much for writing in, Cray. Glad to hear that, that you enjoy the show. And I, I'd like to think that we had a, a good discussion about Turning Red as well. We also got a really nice note from one of our patrons, Benjamin Knyaz, wrote in to tell us, I just wanted to tell you that I'm running a movie discussion group meeting in the Boston area called Seeking Meaning on Screen. Both the title and the selection are largely inspired by your podcast. The group has been around a little over a year now. We meet every few weeks on Zoom and discuss a new film or movie. Our latest was My Octopus Teacher, and later this month, we are doing Marriage Story. It's not a Christian group, it's a meaning-seeking group. I wanted to thank you for drawing me into movie watching and movie discussion, and for being a good curator of what's out there, which helps me pick new films for the group to discuss. In a sense, it's a spinoff of seeing and believing. And Sarah, you're my witness here. When I when I read that, I you know I probably like rocked back in my seat, like clapped my hands over my heart. It was such a nice note. You made I love Kevin's day. <laughs> it, it it really did, Benjamin. Thanks so much for the kind words. And I'm yeah I'm I'm. That's kind of when we talk about keeping the conversation going. It's always great to hear about other listeners who are inspired to start their own conversations around the country in their own little parts of the world. So that sounds really great uh, for any listeners who are in the Boston area. It sounds like uh, Benjamin's got a pretty good thing going there. So maybe you should uh, try to find each other and uh, make a connection there. It sounds sounds really great. Thanks again for writing in, Benjamin. And uh, for any listeners who want to write in, we've already given you our Twitter and our email. If you want to be like Benjamin and also maybe throw a few dollars our way to help keep the, the show going in addition to your kind words, that's also very much appreciated. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We'd really appreciate it. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say, I'm afraid we're on the wrong deck. Well, isn't that a coincidence? Well, for heaven's sake, here's my cab. Fantastic. <clears throat> Would you care to come in <clears throat> and see Emma? That's a new one, isn't it? <laughs> want to wake her up. Wake who up? Emma. Emma? Who's Emma? I thought that was just a gag. Well, technically, she's a Colobrina marsditia, which seems to be a rare type of Brazilian glass snake, which I'm... A snake! And now for something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you started the, the segment that way. That's great. <laughs> the watch list section. Um, so this week, we are going to completely do a 180 from horror and dread and we are going to talk about the 1941 screwball comedy the lady eve which kevin picked for us um the watch list segment is a lot of fun because each host takes turns showing the other host a movie that they have never seen before so i have never seen the lady eve kevin definitely has uh, of course because he picked it so a real quick uh, synopsis a wealthy heir and also snake enthusiast uh, named charles meets and falls in love with the beautiful and clever Jean, played by barbara stanwick um, while on a cruise ship and it turns out that Jean isn't exactly who she says she is she's a con woman and a card sharp um, she's working with her father to basically con travelers out of their money and uh Unfortunately for her, she also might be falling in love with Charles. So, um, Kevin, you tweeted earlier today that you rewatched The Lady Eve last night in preparation for recording tonight. And you said that there isn't anything else quite like a golden age comedy for making you feel slightly more hopeful about the whole human civilization project. So what is it about con people, like con <laughs> women, <laughs> that makes you feel hopeful? Oh, man. So... I mean, first of all, uh, you know, con artists in general, you know, I I can't say that I approve, <laughs> but I will say that if that con artist is Barbara Stanwyck, I'm 100 <laughs> percent, you know, two thumbs up in in total approval. You know, Barbara Stanwyck can con me anytime. Yeah, I've, it's funny you say that because my notes literally say Barbara Stanwyck could con me out of all of my money and I would thank her for it. So. Absolutely. I mean, I have basically no chill about this movie. I I love The Lady Eve. I think that um, it's arguably the greatest romantic comedy ever filmed. I love sharing it with anyone and everyone, which is why even though we had to pull an audible uh, for the new release and, and review Master, I was like, you know, it's not a thematic tie-in, but I don't care. Full steam ahead. We're watching The Lady Eve because I love it that much. I mean, you know, we've already talked about how great Stanwyck is. It's This is arguably a career best performance from her. Mm. I, I mean, I love Double Indemnity too, so that's a close one. Uh, Henry Fonda, I think this is arguably one of his best performances. I think he's fantastic about it, playing against type, and you know maybe our, it, it, he could be this film's secret weapon in some ways. I think he's just 
so good. Um, and I think that it's also it's a it's a film that feels very modern. For all that it was filmed in 1941, watching it today and you know all the the ways that it, it kind of tweaks Henry Fonda's you know pompous rich pretty boy it feels you know very much of a piece with a sort of, a movie that could have been made today mm. and i think that's why i think of it as one of my favorite movies ever is because i can watch it and not just feel like oh it's so nice to kind of like take a trip in the way back machine to the golden age of hollywood it is that and it's great but it also feels like it hasn't aged a day just in terms of its comedic sensibility. So I don't know. You you can easily disenchant humor by trying to overanalyze it too much. So maybe I'll, I should stop there. But I love this movie. And I'm really curious to know if you loved it too. Oh, I loved it. I okay, had... <laughs> great. <laughs> so we can still be co-hosts. Yes, yes. This is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so my first Barbara Stanwyck. Pretty sure my first Henry Fonda as well. Like, wow. I, yeah, so there's a lot of additional movies out there for us to watch in the future. Um, yeah, like I said, I would very gladly be conned out of all of my money by Barbara Stanwyck. But also, um, I tend to be really irritated by unintelligent characters in movies sometimes. And I just want to sort of hug Henry Fonda, <laughs> especially after all of the pratfalls. I was not expecting this to be quite so slapstick as it is. Like the man gets dumped in the mud. He gets coffee spilled all over him. He gets like an entire side of beef sort of dumped in his lap. And every single time I was just laughing really hard because the pacing and like the way that the jokes are told there's not too much time spent on them. It's just enough. And all of the jokes are very rapid fire, which I really appreciated because the moment I was done laughing at one joke, I could just move on to another one. I think Fonda, there's this, so there's this sweetness to his performance. Mm. Like he's not just a dunderhead. Um, he's, he's not just, uh, he's not just the butt of the jokes. He is, you get the sense that, you know, he is a good-hearted person. He's got this aw shucks. Like, I don't think he ever says aw shucks, but you can easily imagine him like going, aw shucks, or gee whiz. <laughs> He's just got that kind of um, very earnest energy to his performance here that you really want the best for him, even though you also enjoy seeing him get his comeuppance for uh, his judgmentalism about uh, Stanwyck's uh, con artist ways, you know, he, that, that's kind of in, at the end of the first act, that's what causes him to break off their relationship. And then the rest of the film is kind of spent. It's like, we're going to see her really take him to the cleaners <laughs> for what he did to her. And it's so much fun. And yet you don't, you're not rooting against him. You still kind of want to see them cut, get together at the end. And that's, I think because Fonda's just, he is sweet. He's he's just a big old kid. And you just you do want to kind of give him a cuddle. He's an innocent. Like he is a true innocent and she is a corrupting influence and I could watch her corrupt him like any day. <laughs> I just Yeah, I don't know. Like there's there's some interesting imagery that's going on in this movie here too. Like he's got a snake and she drops an apple on his head like as he's entering the boat that they're all going to be on. She literally takes on the name Eve and then proceeds to just completely ruin his life. And that feels like kind of a twisting probably of the of the biblical story but the parallels can't be not on purpose it's not i wouldn't say that 
Sturge's telling the story is it's not a subtle film. No. You know, there's there's a, an early scene where uh, you know Fonda's uh, character Charles has boarded this this uh, ocean liner, and you know every eligible young woman on the boat is really kind of angling oh, yeah. angling at him because he's a rich heir, he's handsome, everybody knows it, and so they're they're really trying to. Um, to make to to be the one to take him home, so to speak. He's reading a book called Are Snakes Necessary, which honestly, same. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like one of one of the uh one of the women who's kind of eyeing him, she's she's smoking one of those cheroots, you know, like it's it's not a subtle movie and kind of the innuendo. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's kind of partly what makes it feel so fresh is is it's exactly the right amount of obvious while also being um clever about it like yeah yeah like all of barbara stanwick can deliver a double entendre (laughs) like oh man incredibly well and every single time she says something you think oh that is the only logical end point for that sentence and also i never expected somebody to say that in that specific way Mm -hmm. and nobody's ever going to say it the same way again because they're not barbara stanwick (laughs) right we we will never see her like again Mm -hmm. i think what also makes it feel so modern is the specific way that it takes Charles to task for for his behavior. So he's he is very sweet. He is very earnest. Um he is innocent, but he also has that very that that very specific kind of pompousness that I think a lot of men have mm. when they think they know a lot about a subject and they're just going to tell you about what they know about the subject. And uh, I've never been on the receiving end of that in my life. I'm, I'm sure you haven't. Um, <laughs> but, and I think in, in specific, just the way, you know, Fonda plays it beautifully, obviously, but the the writing of it is just, it's so on point where he kind of, he's essentially mansplaining romance to Barbara Stanwyck's character. And she's kind of going along with it because, you know, she's charmed by him as everyone in the audience is probably. Mm-hmm. But it's that pomposity, I think, that provides the crucial um ingredients to make it fun to watch him get soup dumped on, on his head you know yeah. he, he he is he is kind of uh pompous and uh a little bit of a of a hypocrite and kind of he needs to be shaken out of it and the only way really to make uh, a man like that kind of see the error of his ways is is to trick him into it you can't just tell him he's being pompous you have to kind of like show him how you have to teach him a lesson through more roundabout ways and who better to do that than a con artist yeah and the movie's really smart about doing this to him multiple times too like when he first meets gene and her father and they invite him to play cards with him he says that he knows a few tricks and he tries showing them like how to palm a card. <laughs> and then at the end of the scene, it's a perfect stinger. Um, Gene's father shuffles the cards in a way that I've never seen like anybody do. Like my jaw literally hit the floor. That's like a stage magician kind of It was trick. incredible. He kind of makes the cards just float in the middle of the air and he does it without comment and then it cuts to the next scene. He's just very good at what he does and he'll show off, but he's not going to tell this guy that he's wrong because he's going to use that to his advantage to fleece him of all of his money. I, I want to get your your thoughts. I mean, let's talk more about uh, Barbara Stanwyck in this yeah. movie. Uh, I mean, 
you know, we've talked enough about Henry Fonda. We got to really dig down deep into why Stanwyck is so good. I've got my own thoughts, mm-hmm. but I, I want to get your perspective on, you know, as you were watching this film, since it was your first time, like what, what really jumped out at you about what she was doing and kind of just her character? I, I'm just, yeah, I want to hear more about that. A couple of things. Um, the speed of the dialogue, for one. When we first meet her, she's sort of watching Henry Fonda through like a compact mirror. Mm-hmm. And she's giving color commentary. like Almost like a, like a racehorse like races announcer or something. Um, and she kind of keeps up that pace throughout the entire movie. Like she's able to stay one step ahead of everybody else. And you can just tell through the way that she's delivering those lines. Um, And then also just the way that she holds herself and carries herself. Like there's a lot of confidence, I think, in her frame. And she's very forward and she knows it. And she knows that she has Henry Fonda like wrapped around her finger like right away. And she, the way that she acts, you can tell that she knows that she is the one who is in control of this relationship basically the entire time. Um, There's this great scene, I think, Roger Ebert might have called it like one of the most like sexy and romantic scenes like of all time where they're just sort of sitting cheek to cheek and she's like stroking his hair with his hair and I wasn't expecting that at all like it's it's just it's perfect because her line readings are so matter of fact when they need to be matter of fact but she's also flirty when she needs to be flirty and at the same time she's also throwing this guy off completely because she's messing up his hair and I don't think he's expecting any of this because he also hasn't seen a woman in like about a year at this point so (laughs) she knows how to turn on the charm both from like a physical angle and a mental angle and um, she uses all of that to her advantage in just like an incredibly magnetic way. Like I couldn't stop looking away from her. You, you know, you, you mentioned not being able to, to look away from her. And I was, I was kind of thinking about, you know, what, what is it about Stanwyck in this film uh, that is, is so magnetic? And for me, I think it's not the way she looks. I think it's the way she sounds. That mm. voice that she employs is so wonderful. It's kind of, you know, if you've heard Stanwyck's voice listeners you know what i'm talking about it's you know kind of this this low husky voice it's it's not it's not gravelly it's 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 velvety i i'm out of adjectives to describe (laughs) it but basically it's it's got this ability to cast a spell to not to get too highfalutin about it i think the uh the scene that you mentioned where she's looking at her in her compact mirror and she's sort of narrating what's happening to Henry Fonda's character as all these other women are kind of flocking to him and trying to get catch his eye. Um, watching that, uh, uh, you know, it's all voiceover. Like, we're not seeing her talking. It's all like we're looking at the image and hearing her voiceover. And that voice is just so incredible. And it basically, to me, it, it kind of looks like she's, it's not so much that she's um, narrating like a play-by-play of what's happening it's more like she's controlling she's she's narrating in the sense like she's controlling the way the scene unfolds she's writing it essentially and uh she's spinning a tail and it's all unfolding just exactly as she planned it and you know she does that trick is pulled a second time in the film where uh she now is the lady eve sidwich uh (laughs) goes on a romantic horseback ride with with Charles and she again is just saying like this is how I imagine our horseback ride is going to go and she just it's gonna point be in by six point. weeks no wait it's gonna be in two weeks because he's smitten with me and also the horse is going to mess up both of our hair and of course the horse does incredible horse scene by the way <laughs> absolutely and you know every 
bit of that scene is exactly as she, as she predicted. And it's almost easy for you. Oh, she's saying this two weeks ago, but we're watching like she's she's just so supremely in control of the world around her that she basically creates the scene that she wants out of nothing. Yeah. And, and she does it all through her voice. Yeah. Yeah. And also just so in tune with what other people are going to do and like how they're going to do it too. Like her character is an incredible judge of character. Um, mm. And I think the thing that gets me here is that she's a very good judge of character. And she also seems to like, she loves what she does. She loves the people that she works with. Like she was smiling and happy, like the entire time that she's on the cruise ship. And part of it is because she's starting to fall in love with this guy. And I think part of that is also just, she's a happy person. Like there's no dark side to her, even though she's a con artist. I I like how you, how you say that she's a, she she's a good judge of character, even though she is uh, a con artist. Yes, and I think that's probably again she is a con artist because she's a good judge of character, probably. Right, and I but I think that's kind of what makes this film also feel a little bit subversive is that she's really the only one who has the clarity to both, you know, obviously be able to judge people and take advantage of them, but also to see the good in them as well. Like, mm. She's not cynically using Charles for her own ends, she genuinely ends up liking him. She's not just charmed by him. She sees that, you know, with he's he is a genuinely good hearted person and she's drawn to that. It's not just it's not just all cynicism. And I feel like that's what brings it kind of to this magical territory where it's not just uh you know, on the one hand a kind of a very caustic battle of the sexes movie Mm -hmm. but it's also not kind of uh one of those films where she's strong until the plot requires that she not be strong Mm -hmm. it's she's it's both at the same time and i think that's what gives it the peculiar magic it has for me philadelphia story could never in my opinion (laughs) you know it's funny i actually recently uh watched the philadelphia story like a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. and you know, I like Philadelphia Story just fine, but it is kind of weird how in the Philadelphia Story, everybody kind of is just mean to Catherine Hepburn for no particular reason. Like, mm-hmm. they're they're all hurrying her for being just thinking she's better than everyone, and then she just kind of breaks down in tears and chooses one of the men in front of her. Yeah, which really bums me out. <laughs> it, 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 it's a little strange. Um, and, you know, it suffers by comparison to watching The Lady Eve, where I feel like it kind of manages to do what Philadelphia Story was trying to do and, and couldn't figure out in a way. I think it's because the Lady Eve just has a better view of humanity, I think. Like, Interesting. It it loves people despite their flaws, I think, and is also like, I don't know, I, I, I feel like Jean in particular is drawn to Henry Fonda because of his innocence and also in spite of herself at the same time. And she's going to cause his downfall, but that's not necessarily a bad thing like i don't fully know what to make of it other than i i loved it (laughs) (laughs) and i I think i loved it because it loves its characters in spite of and because of themselves like there's an and there it's not a but Mm -hmm. that's i mean that's that's a great movie right that kind of reminds and maybe that's coming back to the very beginning that's Mm -hmm. maybe what gives me a little bit of hope in the whole human civilization project is watching a movie like this it reminds me that you know the people in the movie are obviously very likable, but it also reminds me that, you know, somebody thought up this story. Somebody created these characters. Somebody invested them with life. The actors gave, you know, gave them life as well. And it's it's nice to kind of know that there are people out there in the midst of everything else that's going on that can 
do something like the Lady Eve. Do you have a favorite joke from this movie? Oh, do I have a favorite joke? Uh, you know, I don't know if I have a favorite joke so much as just favorite lines. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an incredibly sharp script. I I love it. I really like how uh, freshly jilted. Jean has decided that she's going to make Charles pay. Yes. And Barbara Stanwyck, it's in close-up, and she says, I need him like the axe needs the turkey. Incredible line. Incredible line. Um, there are, and, and I mean, I could I could go on and on, but I think that's that's my favorite line. And it's, it's one of those films that's just, there's a joke about every minute, and you can just you know, get lost in, in them and miss the joke if you're laughing too hard. I, it's funny. The internet cut out while we were watching it and then oh, it no. came back and moved back um, like an extra scene or two. And I wasn't mad about it because it meant that I could catch more of the dialogue. Do you have a, did you have a favorite joke? Oh, uh, there's a line where Henry Fonda's like bodyguard type character uh, is complaining about how Barbara Stanwyck is no good and you can't trust her. And Henry Fonda tells him like, well, you thought that that one like priest was a pickpocket, but it turned out that he was a bishop or something like that. And I just like, I thought that was really funny. There's like, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of good, like just colorful one-off lines and asides and like bits of detail. And I think um, my favorite joke was one that isn't even actually a dialogue piece at all. So there's a wedding scene. Barbara Stanwyck is walking down the aisle. She's holding like a bunch of flowers. Those flowers are gladiolus flowers, which represent strength of character and fidelity. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's a joke. <laughs> well, I guess I'll just have to watch the Lady Eve again. There's nothing for it. I, if yeah, I could miss something like that, who knows what else I could have missed. Listeners, that was our discussion of the Lady Eve. As you can tell, it is one of the greatest movies ever made. So if you haven't had a chance to watch it, there's no time like the present. Give it a check it out. You won't regret it at all. Uh, I'm looking forward to next week because, Sarah, you've selected another screwball comedy for us to watch for the watch list segment. Yeah, we're going to keep the screwball comedy train rolling, uh, but we're going to bump it up a couple of decades. So we are going to watch Peter Bogdanovich's What's Up Doc, um, which is basically like Bugs Bunny, but in real life, it's going to be a fun time. I'm looking forward to it. And this will help me brush up a little bit on my uh, uh, blind spots with um, Barbara Streisand. I haven't actually seen a lot of uh, Barbara Streisand movies from kind of her heyday in the 70s. So I'm looking forward to catching up with that. Oh my gosh. So Barbara Stanwyck, incredibly captivating in The Lady Eve. Barbara Streisand in What's Up Doc? also incredibly captivating like another fun like rapid fire sort of con artist type character so i I think we'll have fun with this next one too. all right well i'm looking forward to it and that is our show for this week listeners thanks for tuning in seeing and believing is brought to you by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll see you next week on the show. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. 
This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.